Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Christmas trees have been decorated. New Year's Eve outfits are planned. And Monocle on Culture is subsisting on a diet of pure mince pies. It can only mean one thing. The end of the year is nigh. 2022, your days are numbered. As the year draws to a close, it's time to look back on the cultural gems that the past 12 months have offered up and pass our judgment on which deserve the most praise. I'm joined in that endeavour to find the top three albums, books and films by the music journalist and host of The Last Bohemians podcast, Kate Hutchinson, cultural and literary critic Mia Levitin and the film critic for The Telegraph, Tim Roby. Welcome all to the programme. Are we feeling festive, Mia? I'm going to start with you. Are you feeling vibey? I'm, I'm loving it. I'm deep in mince pies. The red sweater is looking good. And thank you. Um, you know, sparkly <laughs> nails. I'm, yeah. I'm ready. Jingling. And Tim's got his bobble hat on in the studio. I do. I also have what I can only describe as a festive frog in my throat. Okay. It's a very festive frog. You started just, the parties early. Yeah, it's just croaking in there. Okay. Gently. And Kate's always feeling festive. Bar humbug. Oh, come on. I've got a bit of the bar humbug this year, and I'm hoping that by talking about all this great culture that's been going on, it's going to... Get you in the vibe. Yeah, pull me out of it. Okay, well, we're going to start with you. We're going to start somewhere which hopefully is going to get you feeling vibey. We're going to start with Kendrick Lamar. Let's have a clip first of United in Grief. I grieve different... That was Kendrick Lamar, Kate Hutchinson's first choice. She was dancing to it, so I feel like she's feeling a little bit more festive. Tell us why this sits at the top of the programme. You can hear why he's won a Pulitzer, right? I mean, <laughs> and also that incredible drumbeat. That is the first track of, of 18 on this double album. And it just absolutely slays that drumbeat. I love it. So this is the fifth album from the Californian rap titan. And, you know, like, I'm just going to sling some cliches around. It's his most ambitious. It's his most personal. And it's a double album. It's 18 tracks Long, so it's pretty heavy going. Is it a tour de force? I think I've got some eyes around the room that are asking if it is a tour de force. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that it's a tour de force. It's a double album, so it's you know it's an epic. Yeah, but... an epic it is. <laughs> I think it's interesting that two of the biggest albums this year, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers and Beyonce's Renaissance, they sort of share a similar theme. And that theme you can see on the album cover where Kendrick is wearing a crown of thorns holding one of his children with, I believe it's his partner and other child in the background. Perfect, perfect album for Easter more than Christmas. A great Easter album (laughs) and you know and he's really it's really about sort of rejecting the hero worship that's been thrust upon them and certainly in the case of Kendrick. Now this album is so dense. It's like an impressionistic canvas where he's working through some really tough and knotty themes such as racial injustice, generational trauma, objectification, double standards. He's musing on being a father and fatherhood and on family. But it was very interesting that he didn't shy away 
from trying to tackle some quite uh, tricky subjects and, and kind of coming to the conclusion that he's not perfect. He's an imperfect person trying to make sense of the world, as we all are. And the hip-hop music should be about something, can mean something, coming back to the political roots of something like that, right? Definitely. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there, might, there might have been an expectation, what with the Black Lives Matter movement happening in 2020 or, or kicking off once again, let's say, globally in 2020, that, that Kendrick might make an album that was, uh, I don't know, broader in its scope or, you know, taking down Trump or Peg or whatever it was, um, something that was more quote-unquote political. But really, he's, he's gone inwards and he's exploring the politics of the personal. It sort of takes on this sort of journey of his own experience experiences with therapy, I think, where he's really sort of churning through a lot of his childhood issues and stuff. I mean, it feels so raw to listen to. I listened to that track mm. again today, Mother I Sober, and I just, I, could, I just started crying. I mean, it's so powerful what he's saying. Kate, that's very well said. And you and you said you felt came in and felt a little bit unprepared. <laughs> Kendrick's, we've, I'm glad we started with Kendrick. He's brought the very best of Hutchinson out. Um, the album is called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. That was Kendrick Lamar, of course, as beautifully described by Kate Hutchinson. Thanks, Kate, for going there at the top of the show. Um, Mia, it's lovely to have you back on the programme. I think we, we saw you last in spring, more springtime waters. So now we're reviewing the year and you're starting off with John Foss's Septology. This is nothing if not an epic as well. Absolutely. I was going to say it um, definitely qualifies for epic status. It is uh, 825 pages. So it's a bit of a commitment, but worth it. It's one sentence. So there are no full stops and very few kind of chapter breaks. But the prose teaches you how to read it. So you don't get the sense of overwhelm. And it, the best word to describe it is really luminous. So the project is about... It's narrated by an artist towards the end of his life, thinking about religion and friendship and love and art. And he keeps coming back to this concept of, you know, light coming at the darkest time. So I think that's very pertinent to this period of Advent and also, you know, just the year that we've had. So this is a Norwegian novel. It's published by Fitzgerald in translation here in the UK. And it sounds like an amazing thing. Reading around, reading, I'd heard of it. I couldn't recall a review I'd read of it. And it just sounds amazing. So it's, it's basically a man and his, his doppelganger, am I right? That's right. Sort of in some Nor- sort of Norwegian backwater. Indeed. So yeah. he's a, it's, he lives on the coast. He's widowed and he has a friend who has the same name, who's also an artist. And it's purposely unclear whether it's a kind of a sliding doors. The friend is an alcoholic and dying. And, you know, he himself had a problem with alcohol in the past. So it's it's just an interesting play on, on identity. You mentioned it's published by Fitzcrowder. The interesting thing is that he's very well known in Norway, often on the bookies list for favorites for the Nobel. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, internationally, it's a Karlovic Knauskald that's had much more success, which, you know, I attribute to Knauskald being more of a literary hottie. <laughs> right. Okay. <Yeah>. Um, so <laughs> this guy's got a beard, but he wears it less well. Well, I see it, from photos. I mean, I think his, the translator <laughs> of um, of Septology put it very well. He said that um, Karlove is like um, is like Paul, and uh, Fosse is like George. So he's he quote unquote the quiet one, mystical, spiritual, and probably the best craftsman of all the Norwegian writers. So uh, good knitwear though, George Harrison. 
quite yeah so it's apt for for this season yes exactly okay that's beautiful well this is the time of year to 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 invest in septology by john fosse um published by fitz corraldo as uh as recommended by mia levitin um tim we're going to start with you uh this is mass it's a directorial debut from fran krantz where are, who's Fran Krantz and where are we in Mass? Fran Krantz is an actor turned filmmaker who came up with this idea and started writing it. And it reads like a play in many ways. Mm-hmm. If you read the, the screenplay, you'd think this is a play. It's four people sitting in a room uh, talking about the worst thing that's ever happened to them, which I'll explain a little bit more about in a second. It's not about Christmas, is it? He then realised <laughs> he then realised that he was he didn't really have a chance to get this in the theatre. And then I think COVID also came in. And suddenly it became clear that um, making it as a film was much more workable as an independent film. So he kind of retooled it that way and cast four actors from stage and film to play these characters. It's two sets of parents and they're sitting in a, a church function room, hence mass slightly. But they're also talking about the murder that has occurred of one of their children by the other one, i.e. at school at a Parkland type shooting. There's been six years of legal wrangles and recriminations and grief and so on. And the couple played by Martha Plimpton, Jason Isaacs, are the ones who uh, lost their child as a victim of the massacre. And the other couple played by Anne Dowd and Reed Burney are the couple who lost their child as the culprit of the massacre because their son also killed himself at the end of it. And so they have, let's say, an awful lot to work through. Uh, and the, the, it's quite mesmerizing. And in fact, it really does function as a film because of the close-ups. I right. mean, on, on stage... So this, does this all happen? Is this very stagey? It, does it, it all happen it, in one room? It happens in one room, but the camera does a lot of very good maneuvers around mm. these actors. And we get so much detail in their performances from the, from the close-ups that we, we would never get on stage, even if you were craning your necks from the front seats. You wouldn't get that. And I do think that these actors do some of the best work they've ever done. I will single out, for example, Jason Isaacs, best known as uh, Lucius Malfoy from from the uh, Harry Potter series, of course, but a very, very... Character character expert. A very good veteran of British TV and and film, uh, who I always think is extremely charismatic and very, very funny in The Death of Stalin, for example. In this, he's just so brilliant so brilliant he's the one who doesn't really want to be there at first he doesn't understand what the point of this process is he's there for his wife who's who thinks that it's going to be helpful for her therapy he doesn't think it's going to be helpful at all and he kind of wants to blot out everything that the other two are saying and Dowd's character uh, is trying to kind of achieve forgiveness and redemption and brings them a gift and there's something very religious about her and a rather cloying and you understand that she's you know, her damage and her husband has a very loyally quality he's been through all the questions and he realizes what he can and can't say there are certain things that he won't admit to or he won't agree happened on the day to do with his son's mental health for example but i just think this film is amazing uh, and it's definitely one of the best acted film of films of the year and even though it may sound intensely bleak and harrowing it is fundamentally about forgiveness and about trying to reach across a divide it's not it's not i mean it's partly about gun violence and so on of course that's a theme in there mm. but it's also about what seems like an unworkable divide in america between sets of people and how we might try and cross it Thanks, Tim. That was Mass, and that uh, was a directorial debut from Fran Krantz. We're switching it up. It's uh, Charlotte Adigéry and Bori Pupol. This is Kate's next choice. Uh, let's have a clip of Blender. Don't sound like what I look like. Don't look like what I sound like. 
turned on to use a dated expression of sixpence there, didn't we, slightly? We're back in music territory. Kate, this Belgian duo, lots of fun. Yeah, I think like Kendrick Lamar's album was racing through a lot of hot-button topics, this record, Topical Dancer, also touches on a lot of buzzwords and buzz phrases, let's say, like cultural appropriation and misogyny and social media vanity, etc., etc. But it does it in a very playful way. It's a super upbeat, fun-poking record that actually even comprises an entire song out of a a, a laugh, Charlotte's Laugh. Uh, so it's taking these issues and it's taking these things that we that we talk about and that they've talked about on tour. You know, they're two friends that have been on tour all around the world and have shared their experiences and then they funneled them into this quite almost conversational record, if you like. You know, it's based on the things that they chat about in the back of the bus, both being Belgians with an immigrant background and so both having this very specific, you know, experiences of things like racism. You know, in Belgium, um, you know, we, we, that's been a, a massive conversation in the UK and the US, but you don't necessarily in pop music hear that from a European perspective. So that was really interesting too, I think. Um, they're very effortless, aren't they, as well? I mean, this is a, such a lovely record. They seem very charming, right? They're very kind of, they, learn, they sort of wear their le- learning very lightly as musicians, it seems, right? It's just sort of, there's a lot of love that just pours out of this LP, I found. I really enjoyed that, this record this year as well. Definitely. And it's, it's co-produced by Solmax <clears throat> as well. So it came out on their Dewey label. And I think you can hear that it has those sort of, uh, corners, of joy. cornerstones <laughs> of that sort of Dewey sound, which is techno that's left field and, you know, calling to Belgian newbie, but then also bringing in pop and bringing in and also music from around the world as well. There's lots of sort of uh, Zouk influences on mm. this record, lots of French Caribbean influences on this record. It's a triumph of the spirit. There we go, there's the Christmas spirit. That's good, isn't it? We found it eventually. We have got there. That was Charlotte Adigeris and Boris Poupel. And uh, Mia, we're coming to you next, um, and you're going to tell us about the wonderful Helen DeWitt's novella from this year. That's right. So the wonderful Helen DeWitt uh, graces us with The English Understand Wool, which is part of a series released by New Directions, uh, of short books called Storybook ND, which promise the pleasure one felt as a child reading a marvelous book from cover to cover in an afternoon. Hmm. So, you know, to your question of how long it takes to read a book. This You're mixing it up. Yeah, this Indeed. I, I like you it. Know, I like it. It was a little bit of a Goldilocks approach. You know, big book, <laughs> tiny novella, and then I'm going to go with a medium to, at the end. <laughs> something for everyone. But I do think there's something to that enjoyment. And I'm, you know, really for this trend we're seeing towards the novella. I was delighted this year to see um, two very short books on the, the Booker shortlist, including the wonderful Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These, um, which is a gem of a, of a novel. Shrika Walker was also quite short at 152. And so, you know, there are authors that work by accrual and throw everything in there, and there are authors that work by elimination. Um, and the interesting thing about Helen DeWitt is that she, she can do both. So I know her from Lightning Rods, which is completely brilliant, bananas kind of satire Bonkers, on male outlandish. office behaviour yes. and how you might deal with that. This is also a satire, I understand. It is. I know you can't say too much about it because it's only 64 pages long. That's right. But where vaguely are we in this with the, with the English Understand World? What was such a bizarre title. So she is uh, satirising the publishing industry with whom she had quite... Um, 
a hard time with the publication of her first novel. So mm-hmm. she had a hard, really hard time getting a book deal to begin with. And then when she did, there were legal issues and typesetting issues, so much so that, you know, it led her to kind of suicidal depression. Um, and it took her a really long time to write um, her next book. So I think it's kind of her, you know, um, sweet revenge on the publishing industry to have her <laughs> protagonist, who's a 17-year-old girl, um, kind of play with uh, play with the publishers when she gets a 2.2 million dollar book deal okay nice that'll set off some set off some minds in the minefield of publishing um, thanks Mia that's Helen DeWitt's short but sweet the English understandable I'm so pleased I got the title out correctly in the end. Um, Tim we're coming back to you um, and movie land um, tell us a little bit a bit about ascension we're in we're in the documentary realm here yeah this is actually one of two documentaries I've picked, which are very contrasting. Uh, this one, again, came out back in January, but is now on Amazon Prime. For anyone who subscribes to Amazon Prime, it's there. Uh, it is a stunning film about Chinese social mobility. Uh, it's directed by the Chinese-American filmmaker Jessica King Don, who is a new name to me. Um, but she structures it as a sort of essay film. It, it's a non-narrative film, and she doesn't interview anyone. She doesn't. There's no voiceover narration. We, we, we essentially deal with it through entirely through the imagery that she presents to us. She starts with images of uh, discarded uh, items on the streets in China. We see uh, these uh, p- uh, rental bikes, which are in, 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 in uh, Beijing, they're, uh, they're black and yellow, and we see them from above in a kind of God's eye shot, just kind of littering the streets. They look almost weirdly organic. They mm. look sort of almost it's like something bees are doing. Uh, and the sheer amount of uh, product that has been put there and which is not being used is made clear. And then we move into the, the realms of um, the, the working class and factories and factory life uh, and what's going on in the places in China that manufacture all those little bits of gubbins that you buy for eBay on for, you know, for 60 6p where, where are those made and who is it that does them like yeah. what, what are people's hands doing when those things are put through machine bits of rubber we move into a, a factory that manufactures sex toys and we see them literally kind of putting breasts onto dolls and things like this and creating cavities in sex toys and all the many hundreds of people who are involved in that but then as the film carries on as i say it's entirely told imagistically it kind of climbs up through the ranks into the kind of middle management and we see people being given instructions on etiquette as flight attendants and so on and exactly how to deal with customers and to be as obsequious as possible and to respect the status of anyone who's sort of meant to be above them and so on. Uh, and we we do, we climb up to the, the top of the management and to the, the places in the high up in the hotels uh, which only the very richest in society could possibly afford to stay in, etc. Uh, and the film just takes you on that journey and scares you quite a bit, to be honest. It's it's not a, uh, an easy film to watch. It's quite unsettling. Uh, it's quite it's, balletic, though, isn't it? It it's, is, because, yeah. because there's no talking heads to kind of interrupt the... the, 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 the the, the the movement and the montages of these actions it's kind of a really mesmerizing it's really hypnotic beguiling thing for yeah. sure and it all flows so mellifluously it gives you this sense of a machine that's running very smoothly and yet rather unsettlingly <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, and 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 prompts all sorts of questions about 
about Chinese society. It's amazing. It's kind of it, it's it's also an amazing feat of access, I suppose, and patience in gaining all that access, and presumably smuggling quite a lot of those tapes out of China. I'd have thought absolutely. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those. It's not that easy to do this. And I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that um, Jessica Kindon doesn't speak. Cantonese, I believe it is, mainly in the film. And so she's recording all this stuff and she doesn't even know what people are saying. And in the edit, she kind of got it translated for her and realised, oh, this little conversation in the background of this shot between these two people in the factory is actually very interesting. They're talking about the issue with their lunch break. Let's have that. Mm. Uh, and so she sort of it came together in the edit in that way and points were made that way. Beautiful. That is Ascension. Uh, the director is Jessica King-Don. It was nominated for 2022 Academy Award for Best Documentary. It is well worth checking out. Is that on Amazon Prime? Do you it say? is. Um, and presumably elsewhere as well, but that's uh, Ascension. Thanks, Tim. Great recommendation. Um, we're going to Musicland, Kate. Hello. Rosalia. Rosalia. That's a good cue. Said like a true stan. <laughs> <laughs> Rosalia with a clip of something called Hentai from the album Motomami. I mean, you can hear that very beautiful sort of piano ballad that's being sort of aggressively bisected by gunshots. I mean, it's a weird pop record. And I think that maybe unites all of the uh, three things that I've chosen for my favourite albums of the year. Because I just feel like mainstream music and and, and Renaissance, Beyonce's Renaissance is, is part of this as well, but it is unabashedly weird like this record you know rosalia is this is her third album she's now a global superstar el maquera her last album came out in 2018 which is when i discovered her and i went to interview her and saw her live show in madrid and it was just phenomenal and so she's come from this you know this flamenco very traditional um spanish background and has ascended the ranks to become this global pop phenomenon. Um, and I think it's quite hard to do that without losing, you know, your original sound or losing that weirdness. And if anything, they've really kind of amped it up on Motomami. Um, and I think that track is just, it's just one of the, I mean, she, it's, it samples Burial. She covers yeah. Daddy Yankee or she does a sort of spin on a Daddy Yankee song. She's she's referencing uh, salsa legends like Willie Colon. But I also... Willie Colon sounds like it might have been a mis- misprint, but who knows? Willie, Co- Willie Colon. Oh, Willie Colon. Um, Again, in the Spanish Willie way. Semicolon. On, really, yeah, well, if if if, if this Very was a Fitzcarraldo novel, it would be, you know, no colon. Okay, <laughs> bring it full circle. I like it. I wanted okay. to have a, ca- a coda in this program. I like it. But I, I would say that um, I think that this record, you know, has also there's been a bit of backlash about uh, Rosalia appropriating flamenco music. She's a white Catalan woman and she's also uh, exploring and using lots of Afro-Latin genres and a bit like Kendrick Lamar's record as well. You know, I think I think they're, that they're imperfect albums that uh, make you ask questions and I think that's what great pop music or great music does. 
So why is 2022... Is it why is it kind of made such weird music? Do you think is it a post lockdown thing? Is it people need something really kind of memorable to use in tiny little TikTok clips? Is it something that is very live, kind of transfers to the live experience? If we're if we're talking about selling tickets, where are we going? I mean, I think you might have uh, s- summarised it. Oh, sorry. There. I think I think that TikTok TikTok thing's really interesting, and this idea that interesting sound that what jumps out what jumps out and i think you know i, I you can definitely hear that um that i mean that that, that some may... micro samples and little bits yeah. yeah like the bittiness of it the sort yeah. of um the kind of patchworkiness of it and the way that pop music is um is is sewn together now beautiful as summarized because we were discussing rosalia's motto mummy and we heard a bit of hentai let's go to louise Kennedy, Mia Leverton. With trespasses, in what realm are we here? So this is a medium-length book. <laughs> um, it is. You're sitting out. I like this. Will that take me to read? Yeah, no, I like this. I like this. I like where we're going. With this. I think it's really interesting what Kate was saying about the medium of sharing affecting the actual work, right? Because you did see a, a time when book covers are being affected by them being shared on Instagram, mm. and book talk is also affected. I'm not sure that it's affecting what people write yet. But I can tell which authors you are on social media or not. You know, mm. I don't think Jan Fosse could have written his kind of long meditative stream of consciousness if he were on Instagram. So it's kind of interesting to. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so Trespasses is historical fiction. You know, this is a year where we lost Hilary Mantel, who I think kind of transformed the genre. Mm. And I do think it is one of the functions or one of the great things about fiction that it can bring you to a place in time through well-rendered characters that can make you live through historical events in a way that nonfiction maybe has a harder time doing, with some exceptions, such as Anne Frank. Mm. And it's also kind of a reclamation of the female experience of that time because, you know, we tend to think about violence and war in sort of male terms. Like there's this anecdote my parents tell about reading War and Peace in school where the boys would read war and the girls would read peace. And I think Louise has really managed to bring those two together because, you know, the troubles are very prevalent. It's the story of a love affair between a, a Catholic school teacher and a Protestant lawyer who's married. And he's one of the few Protestant barristers who's questioning the non-jury trials at the time and the police in Ireland. And so she, you know, has this affair with him that's kind of rendered in a very personal, intimate way. Uh, And yet, you know, it's on the backdrop of massive troubles as they are. So the love and affection is against this awful backdrop in a garrison town, right? So there's a horrible dichotomy there of where we are in the British Isles or... Yeah. So it's based on um, where Louise Kennedy grew up herself before the family had to move. So she, her family also owned a bar. Kushla, the protagonist, works part-time in her brother's bar. So they're Catholic. It's a Catholic-owned bar in the Protestant town. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of class and sectarian tensions there. And I want to ask you just, just briefly, Mir, about the kind of historical fiction aspect of this, because it's such a strange thing. We, we mentioned Hilary Mantel, who bestrides the genre you know, rightfully so, I suppose, as you say, reinvented it. I kind of wonder whether in reviewing historical fiction and as readers of it and consumers of it as well, and where it maybe even sits in the, in the covers of those books, we feel like there is a certain cut-off point for historical fiction, that if it's in the Troubles, the Northern Irish Troubles, then it's sort of almost like it becomes a different genre somehow because it's too close to where we live now. Do you know what I mean? I wonder whether on the sliding scale of historical fiction as opposed to 
contemporary fiction, whether that where we get off that bus. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, no, because I hesitated to even use that word. And I asked actually Mm. the the literary editor of the Irish Times whether it was considered historical or not. And Mm. of course deflected with it depends who you ask Um, (laughs) because there's some people who are still kind of very focused on reparations for me and you know obviously there are people alive many people alive who experienced it but I do think it's pertinent because it offers a space to work out the past and process it right like Mm -hmm. all art does in a certain regard and I do think that takes some time so whereas I think you have seen a clutch of fiction coming out dealing with the troubles to me suggests that we're ready to process that now Whereas, you know, the kind of glut of pandemic lit this year, some of which was better than others. But for me, overall, I don't think we have enough distance from that to process it as Too a soon. collective experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting stuff. That is Trespasses, beautifully described by Mia Levitin. The author, of course, is Louise Kennedy. We're going to finish, Tim, with you and the rock documentary, if it indeed is one, that ruled 2022, and that is Moon Age Daydream. This floated your boat, your Bowie boat. It really did, yeah. It was a bit of a Bowie year for me. I got myself an Aladdin Sane tattoo on my forearm, which I'm displaying to the fellow guests. Here. <laughs> nice. Um, and this film kind of triggered it, I must say, because I saw it just before Cannes and it slightly blew my mind. I'm going to tell no one where it is streaming, where it is available to stream, or which you know services one, one can watch it on one's laptop, because that is not the way to see it. You have to go and see it with an audience on a big screen. There will be more opportunities. It's bound to be nominated for the Best Documentary Oscar, like Ascension was. It could win. It could also, and deserves to be nominated for Best Sound, yeah. because Brett Morgan, the director, hired the best people in the business as sound editors, to work on this film, a whole team of them, Oscar-winning people. And they did an incredible job because they're sifting through the entire archive that was opened up to them by the Bowie estate, everything that he ever kept, much of which has never been put out there. And they had access to this for years, and they poured over it. And, of course, what these things are varies so much. It's sort of scratchy, old, uh, handheld footage from his very early days, the London gigs, all the way up to you know, the sort of high-end pop videos and and all sorts and interviews that he was doing later in his career, all of which had to be sort of melded into one fluid piece for the film. Uh, And so kind of using those elements and getting them to kind of laying them over each other and doing all that sort of stuff has been an incredibly big job for them to do. And this feels like John Fosse. This feels like a novel with very little punctuation in it. This feels like a a film that's one sentence, doesn't it? Yeah, I get that. And also it does tally with the previous doc I mentioned, Ascension, in that Mm. it doesn't have the talking heads Mm. and it doesn't explain things. And in fact, the only person explaining anything is Bowie, which is great. The only person who really talks to us on screen is Bowie. And And Russell Harty, fortunately. A tiny bit of Russell Harty. Yeah, Yeah, just just (laughs) a tiny little insert of him. That's true. But uh, there's very... you know, that's merely an aside in the otherwise <laughs> rich carpet of Bowie-ness that we basically get from this film. And it does a really good job of taking you through a sort of semi-chronology of Bowie's artistic journey without getting bogged down in there in sort of like, oh, what was the next album? Oh, yeah, mm. then he did this and then he did this. And no, it, it manages to kind of tip you into a sort of slightly dream state of going through Bowie's career very cleverly. I mean, there are things I wish it could have added. It is, it's long. It doesn't feel long. It's 2 hours 20 and whips by. But I, I miss sections of the last sort of 10, 15 years of his career. Some of those later albums, it only really touched on a tiny bit. But in terms of as a sort of overview and as a, a dive into the kind of psyche of Bowie and what he was thinking about, what he was trying to do and what his songs 
achieved, I do think it's pretty marvellous. Yeah, it's wonderful stuff. And as you say, go and see it in the in the theatre, go and see it in the cinema. It's an amazing thing. The sound is incredible. And just lastly on that, there are lots of kind of takes of songs. The audio mix is really, really interesting. There are lots of ways into songs that you think you know super well that you haven't quite heard this kind of version of as well. Absolutely. He's been given the individual <clears throat> elements so he can isolate yeah. tiny bits of vocal and he can do all sorts of things that you may not have picked up on before. And rare live versions that, I mean, I think the version of Let's Dance in the film is so much better than the one on record. Mm. I love it. Yeah. Uh, he's so much more animated and into it. And so there's all sorts of that stuff. There's all sorts of Easter eggs for fans and that. Get yourself, says Tim Roby, to Moon Age Daydream. That was directed by the brilliant Brett Morgan. We had him on this programme. You might want to spill back into the Michael archives and listen to that about Moon Age Daydream. Thank you, all three of you, for your wit and wisdom and I think mostly picking up and loving what each other's been talking about on this programme as well. So thank you very much to Kate Hutchinson, Mia Leverton and Tim Roby. Thanks very much, guys. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Goo and Steph also edits the programme. We'll be back at the same time next week but until then from me Robert Bounds thanks for tuning in